Um, the words of the song that we've just sung said, Oh Lord, you've searched me. And the psalmist uh, cried out, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Uh, see if there be any wicked or offensive way in me. And every time that we gather around the Lord's table and we remember the death of Jesus Christ, it's so important that we come to the cross, at the cross, and we examine ourselves and we search ourselves. And we say, God, see if there be any uh, offensive way, anything between you and me. And we bring it again afresh and we bring it to Jesus. And we leave it with him. Not because of anything that we've done, but through what Jesus has done. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18 says this, that for Christ died for sins. That's why he died. He died for sins. And it says these words, once for all. So if you're here tonight, you're part of the all. Christ died once for sins, once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus is the righteous one. And you and I are the unrighteous one. Because when we come to search our heart and examine our lives, we see that there is uh, things that we need to confess tonight as we come around the table. And the reason he died is to bring you to God. Why is bringing you to God and him paying, being put to death for our sin all in the one verse? It's because our sin keeps us from God. And tonight as we come to this table and as we come at the foot of the cross again, we come as people who recognise our failure, who recognise our desperate need for forgiveness from Jesus our Saviour. As we reflect on the cross, we come with thankfulness for what he's done. And as we give ourselves a fresh thanking God for his death and as we ask him to forgive us for the things that we might have done in the last week or the things that we might have done in this day. We do that giving thanks. So in these moments, you might want to just close your eyes and imagine that you're there at the cross. And I'm just going to read from Mark's Gospel and you might put yourself uh, somewhere in the scene. Maybe you picture yourself on the hill or walking through the crowd or maybe you're off in the distance but let's come to the cross recognising that each one of us are people who are sinners and if it wasn't for Jesus we wouldn't be able to come close to him but his death has made a way A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander, and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him 
to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those standing near heard this. They said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Let's pray. At the cross, we bow our knee where your blood, Jesus, was shed for me. There's no greater love than this. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Thank you, God, for sending your son. Thank you for dying on the cross so that we can be forgiven.
And thank you, God, that you've overcome the grave. You've risen again. We know we can take hold of this forgiveness so full and free. We're victorious because you rose again. And we thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Right now we're going to serve you. And as you serve the bread, would you just take it? And just remember, perhaps picture yourself back again at the cross and just take that bread and, and eat it, remembering that he died for your sin. Say thank you and claim that forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And hold on to the cup and then when we've all been served, we'll drink together and remind ourselves that those who put their trust in Jesus Christ a part of his family and we'll drink together with full and thankful hearts. Tonight, if you don't know Jesus, just feel free to just let this go. Uh, tonight, as you take this, you're saying, Jesus, thank you for what you did for me. I accept you as my Lord and Saviour. Let's share this meal together. together giving thanks for the forgiveness that we receive from the cross. pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, uh, we uh, just know that you are working amongst us tonight, God, and your spirit lives within us, every heart of the believer. Uh, and we just uh, pray, Lord Jesus, risen Jesus, we ask that your spirit now would be just uh, continuing to lead us and change us and remind us of who we are in you, Jesus. Father, it's for your glory we pray this. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I watched uh, a movie this this week called The Kite Runner. Um, has anyone seen The Kite Runner? Yeah, some people. Uh, a great educative movie, I reckon, but a, a disturbing movie all at the same time. Um, it's set uh, in like current day, but it kind of flashes back to 1970s, uh, the 1970s in Afghanistan, in the city of Kabul, before the Russians came and uh, made war on the country, and then what followed that, before the Taliban then kind of like started enforcing their harsh restrictions on the country. And the title refers to what used to be this common sight in Kabul, this kite flying. Um, quite fascinating. And in the, the movie there, are two, the two of the main characters... Uh, these two young boys. Uh, one boy was called Amir and the other boy, Hassan. And the two boys were great friends and they used to fly their kite together, one holding the spool, the thread that held the kite, and the other boy, Amir, sort of flying the kite. 
Um, and there's one pivotal scene where these older boys are threatening Hassan. So while Amir is hiding, the boys are threatening his friend Hassan. They threaten him and then the boys beat him and then the boys do other things to him as well. All the while, Amir is watching on. At any moment, they would have stopped if Amir had have come out. If Amir had have come out and named Hassan as his friend, it would have all ended. Amir said Hassan was his friend, but his actions said something else. This is a, a prime example of hypocrisy. Saying one thing and then doing something that contradicts what you say. I did a Google search um, and I was trying to find examples of hypocrisy or of hypocrites. And it's phenomenal how many of the articles that came up related to politicians. Um, but hypocrisy, it's not just something reserved for members of parliament. Hypocrisy can unfortunately be a little closer to home. In tonight's passage of Galatians, Paul says it's in the church. I wonder how close is hypocrisy to us? How close is it to me? How close is hypocrisy to you? Um, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. And if you'd like to leave your Bibles open, we'll keep referring to it as we move through. That's Galatians 2. Who's the hypocrite in the church? Well, from verse 11, let's read. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Peter uh, is a founding leader of the early church. So Jesus died upon a cross, rose um, from death, and then after a little while he ascended back to heaven to be with the Father. And then he empowered his spirit, put his spirit into the, to his people, and the church began. Peter was there. Peter was a founding leader, a pillar of the early church. He'd been given the responsibility to continue to build the church. And Paul says, right in the face of everybody, Peter, you are a hypocrite. Paul says, you're a hypocrite because you used to eat with Gentile Christians, Gentile meaning those that haven't got a Jewish heritage, you used to eat with Gentile Christians, but now, because of your fear of the other Jewish people over what they might say, you stopped. You're a hypocrite. You see, Jewish people only eat with Jewish people. Jewish people only eat with those people who follow Jewish law and custom. Jewish people can eat with Gentiles, but only if those Gentiles follow Jewish law and custom. Of course, um, as a follower of Jesus, 
it doesn't matter who you eat with. We know that because Jesus ate with all sorts of misfits. Now, Peter got that point very clearly. He knows it doesn't matter who you enjoy table fellowship with. But when some Jewish people rocked up, they gave him the heebie-jeebies, whatever that means, and he started to draw away from the non-Jewish Christians because he didn't want to get the Jewish people offside. And Paul says, you're a hypocrite. Now, I read this and I think, Paul, mate, you're being a little harsh. He's still a follower of Jesus. He's a leader in the church. He's trying to help people come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's just that he got a bit scared because he didn't um, want the Jewish people offside. Or he didn't know what they were going to think about him if he did things differently. So he made a little compromise. It's only a little compromise. Do we make little compromises? Don't you and I make just little compromises? Is Paul going a bit over the top? Is he getting worked up over nothing? Well, Paul continues. And as he continues, the reason for his passion and frustration becomes crystal clear. Please look with me back at verse 14. Paul says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. There are two reasons for Paul's passion and frustration at going at Peter's hypocrisy. Firstly, there's a kind of gospel plus thinking. I'll explain that a bit more. And secondly, it's leading other people to become hypocrites as well. Let's look at the first thing, gospel plus thinking. Firstly, we read in verse 14 that Peter is not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. He, he is altering the truth of the gospel by his hypocritical actions. He's altering the truth of the gospel, which we read in verse 15 is that a man or woman is not justified by observing the law, but here's the truth of the gospel, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The truth of the gospel is that any person will be justified in God's sight through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Being justified in God's sight means to be made right in God's sight. Going from a broken, wrong relationship with God, destined for the end result being perishing and eternity without God, going from that to a fixed up, right relationship with God. Right relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the truth of the gospel. So any person, people, let's labour it a little bit. No matter what background, no matter race or their weight 
or whether they're male or female or social demographic, no matter if they stink like poo or grog or cigarettes or if they stink like Calvin Klein, Hugo Boss or Rex Owner, any person will be justified before God through faith in Jesus Christ. Observing the law, following a set of rules, acting in a way that you think is the right way will never, never make you right in God's sight. Paul is seriously frustrated with Peter and the church at Galatia because even though they believe it's only through faith in Jesus, even though they believe it's the gospel that they're saved, they are modelling to people that you actually have to do something more. You have to plus something to it in order to be right in God's sight. This gospel, yeah, believe in that, plus start acting in a different way. So to all those poor people without the Jewish background who have become followers of Jesus, he's saying, Peter's saying by his actions that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ plus you've got to follow the dietary laws of our faith. You've got to follow the Jewish customs if we are going to have fellowship with you. Believe in Jesus for your relationship with God plus get circumcised plus do all the things that the Jewish people do. And this is wrong. It's hypocritical. It's not in line with the truth of the gospel. It's so wrong as well because it has the effect of enslaving people that they somehow believe that faith in Jesus Christ is not enough, that they have to do something more to enter God's kingdom. And it's a lie that if people get, it won't lead them to eternity with God. It will lead them to the complete opposite. Now let's bring this a little closer into like 2008 and into our building here tonight. I need everyone in this room to stop and just ponder for a moment a little question. Do you, fair income, believe that you are justified in God's sight by faith alone in Jesus Christ? Do you honestly, deeply believe that? That it's not about you becoming a better person by working at it that gives you confidence that you'll be in God's presence for eternity. Ponder that. Now let me ask it perhaps in another way. Hypothetical. Imagine your number is up tonight. You will meet God before 9.30 this evening because a sermon will kill you. (laughs) And today, as you've been living out, Sunday the 20th in 2008, you've thought a bad thought that God hasn't been pleased with. That you have... Um, acted in a way that God looked at and just went, that's just dodgy. Or you said something that God didn't like. You know, you sinned against God today. Now, as a Christian tonight, are you confident that God will forgive you for all this and he'll welcome you with open arms? Are you or are you not sure because you've marked up? I think it's um, a bit alarming. Uh, The number of people, even in our community here, that say with their mouth that they have faith in Jesus Christ alone for their justification before God's sight, but still are unsure of how God sees them. And so they're working their hardest to become a good person. 
It's not bad to work hard at becoming a good person, but if you think that you're working hard and you getting rid of sin will make God accept you uh, any more or any less, you're actually mistaken. God does not accept or reject you based on what you do. So if you're, you say you're a Christian and or plus you're working really hard at becoming a better person so that God will accept you, you've got it wrong. God only accepts you based on um, you being justified through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done. Do you, does that ring a bell for you? Do you get that? The gospel is justification by faith in Jesus alone. Now, let me just say, if you personally struggle with this problem, you know, that you're not sure if it's by faith alone, so you're starting to do more things to give yourself confidence, what may well be happening is that you begin to model that to other people. You actually, by what you do and what you say, you actually begin to model that. It's not about just justification by faith in Christ. It's actually, you've got to do a whole lot of good stuff. You know, you might not be modelling it, but you might be. Okay, some people get angry at other Christians who drink alcohol. Some people can't believe that a person could call themselves a Christian and still smoke cigarettes. Some people can't believe a person is a Christian if they are consumed by material possessions. But a person is not justified by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you model that your relationship with God is through Jesus plus something else? That's the first reason why he's so passionate um, to address this hypocrisy. It's that gospel plus thinking. It's just wrong because it's not in line with the gospel. The second reason that Paul is so passionate and frustrated with the hypocrisy is that it leads other people to become hypocrites too. It's not just the person who suffers from hypocrisy, but other people become influenced. So we read in verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. The other Jewish Christians joined him in his hypocrisy. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And Barnabas was a solid follower of Jesus, a great leader in the early church. Even he was led astray. Now, Peter was a major leader in the early church, so he had heaps of influence. But even if you are not in formal leadership in your church here, you can influence very much those you interact with. The long-term effect of Peter's hypocrisy is the destruction of the community. Can you imagine where that church community, the church in Galatia, would have ended up um, if this hypocrisy wasn't stopped? Very easily it would have been divided into two churches. The church that followed Jesus that were Jewish uh, have Jewish descent, and another church that didn't have a Jewish background, the Gentiles. So I wonder tonight, do you suffer from subtle gospel hypocrisy? And is your hypocrisy influencing other people in the community? I wonder, is God confronting you with anything tonight? Now, at this point, some of you might be thinking, hang on, you have to become a better person as a Christian. You have to work hard at dealing with your sin. You can't just say, 
I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus. I'm a Christian. It doesn't matter what I do now. You, surely you can't just say that. And if this is your objection, you're not on your own. It's the same issue the church in Galatia was having. The church in Galatia had people saying, I'm saved by grace, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I keep sinning, it's fine. And then they had the people, perhaps like yourself, saying, hang on, are you really a follower of Jesus? Their solution was to develop some religious markers, some outward markers that would um, help us be able to tell who the fair income Christians were. And the religious markers they leaned to were that from the Jewish law. It was good, it was in essence from God, so let's use that. You know, let's use that to determine who the fair income Christians are. I wonder what ours are today. What outward markers do we have that we lean to so that we can know who the real believers are? Perhaps there's some of the following. Bible reading and belief that God's word is God's word. Perhaps it's regular. A believer would have the mark of they'd have a regular quiet time or that they would be people who serve the people of God. Perhaps they would have regular church attendance or they'd be involved in mission or evangelism or serving the poor. They're all positive things. Maybe they're the markers we lean to. Maybe it's other things like uh, we know a Christian, if they're really telling the truth, because they don't drink alcohol or they don't smoke cigarettes or they don't swear or they don't go to pubs, clubs or outrageous parties. Now, Paul says about um, this solution of having markers, whether they are actually enforced as a law by the church or whether they are enforced merely by our modelling, what he says about them is, hey, well-meaning, very well-meaning, great idea, but it's hypocrisy. Justification in God's sight is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But Paul, he moves on. And now he talks of another form of hypocrisy. Please look with me at verse 17 and 18. It says, If while we seek to be justified in Christ... It becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. There is another form of hypocrisy that runs parallel to gospel plus thinking and living. There's another form of hypocrisy that runs parallel to the belief that you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ plus doing good stuff or having outward markers. And the hypocrisy is this, using God's grace in Jesus to give you permission to keep on sinning. Did you get that? There's the other form of hypocrisy. Using God's grace in Jesus as another, to give you permission to keep on sinning. So the person who says, I'm saved by faith in Jesus, therefore if I do this sin, and you can add whatever sin that you might perhaps you probably don't, but, you know, give yourself permission to do. If I, I'm saved by faith in Jesus, therefore I can do this sin, it doesn't matter. The person who says that is like communicating hypocrisy. It doesn't matter if I sin now. A statement like this to a new believer or to a non-believer could even communicate them that Jesus just doesn't care. 
if you sin. That's hypocrisy. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. And the sense is this, if a person keeps willingly sinning against God, doing the things that they know don't please God, and they claim that it's all right because they have faith in Jesus Christ, they prove that they are still a lawbreaker. They prove that they, in actual fact, do not have faith in Jesus Christ. They are a lying hypocrite. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. Don't be caught up in this form of hypocrisy either, of using faith in Christ as permission to keep sinning. It's an interesting issue that was present for God's church in Galatia. And it's likewise an an issue for God's church today. And I would say it could well be an issue for some of us here as well. The tension between two types of hypocrisy. On the one hand saying, I'm saved by faith. It doesn't matter if I willingly keep singing. It's all right. God forgives me. And on the other side, those people, those of us who would say, we need to develop some outward markers to tell who's in and who's out. Gospel plus thinking. They're both hypocrisies and the tension exists between the two. And I think underlying the tension is a great question, a question that we need to answer. The question, I think, goes something like this. How does someone's life change as a result of faith in Christ? Does it change? If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, does anything change at all or does it not change? The last few verses give us the answer. From verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Verse 20 is what I want to focus on. Absolutely amazing. It reads, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. How does someone's life change as a result of faith in Christ? The answer, dramatically. Check it out. I've been crucified with Christ. It's like my old life. Living for myself, ignoring, rejecting, you know, sinning against God and his ways, that dies. And then it says, the life I live in the body, and that's our physical life now, that is every day I live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The sense is this, when we put our faith in Jesus, the old us, the old me, dies It dies. It's got to die. And then we're raised to live on the life support system that is Jesus Christ. We are raised to live on the life support system that is Jesus. Now, some people see faith as kind of tacked on to our life. So it's like, I live my day. I have work. Or I have uni. I have school. And I've got faith. So faith is kind of like this compartment at the end over here. Whereas for the person who really has faith in Jesus Christ, 
for their justification before God, faith enables life. Faith in Jesus, uh, faith in Jesus is the means by which we live. Faith is the way we breathe, or the way we eat, or the way we speak, or the way we talk or walk. So for the man or woman of real faith, they say, this day is yours, Jesus. I'm alive now because of you. How do you want me to live? You can see how real faith kind of deals with both forms of hypocrisy. There's no longer any need for outward markers because a person who says, I'm alive now because of you, Jesus, what do you want me to do? There'll be outward signs. They'll be naturally there. There's no longer any confusion about how good you have to be because the person who says, I'm alive now because of your life support system, realises that they can do nothing apart from respond in obedience. Because you know Jesus sustains your life by his grace and mercy. Nor can a person go on willingly sinning and defying God because if they know the God that sustains them, how can they possibly spit in the face of the life support system of Jesus? So for the real man or woman of faith, they say, this is your day, Jesus. I'm alive because of you. What do you want me to do? And I can just go through a few examples like, and just to think about the effects of someone who has faith in Jesus on their life. So if you're asking a question, um, for the non-Christian, this one anyway, how can you know if God sees you as his child? Well, ask the question, Jesus, how, how do you see me? How do you see me, Jesus? What do you say I have to do to be justified? If you've got a question that says, you know, who should you welcome at church? You'll be going... Jesus, you know, how does Jesus want me to welcome people at church? How does Jesus want me to come before him on a Sunday night? How does Jesus want me to serve the community? How does Jesus want me to speak to my friends? How does Jesus want me to love the lost or love the poor person? How does Jesus want me to do it? Because we say, this is your day, Jesus. I'm alive because of you. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? Real faith in Jesus Christ affects dramatic life change. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I wonder tonight at the close of this message... What is God calling you to do so that you can continue or maybe perhaps begin the journey of real faith in Jesus Christ? This passage is really a call back to the fundamentals of Christianity. It's a call back to what real faith in Christ is. It's a call back to a dramatic life change that results when we put our faith in Jesus Christ when we have real faith. It's interesting to think, just momentarily, where, Paul's hypocr- uh, where Peter's hypocrisy, where that would have led the church. I wonder where real faith, if each and every one of us would just recommit our lives to Jesus 
and say, I live now because of you. I'm alive because of you, Jesus. How do you want me to live? I wonder what the impact would be, not only on this small local church of God here, but on the surrounding community, on your friends, on your family. I think that's uh, something to dream about, to catch that vision. I'm going to leave it there. I would like to pray, and I would just want us to continue to think through you know, what is Jesus calling us to do? If you struggle with hypocrisy, what is Jesus wanting you to do now? Let's pray. Father God, we want to say that you're amazing, God. And that as we shared communion tonight, it is all a work of your grace and it's, we are justified in your sight, made right in your sight through faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Father God, we praise you for that good news. We praise you for that gospel. And Father, we pray that uh, any form of hypocrisy, that you would reveal that to us, us as individuals and us as a, a community of faith here. Oh, Father God, we just want to have faith in you, Jesus Christ. And we want to say that our life, old life has died and then now, Lord, we live because of you. And we just say that we're alive because of you and we say, how do you want us to live now? And we ask that you would lead us in this way. Please help us deal with all forms of hypocrisy, Lord, that this church, your local church here in Wodonga District Baptist Church, would be one that just uh, lives up to all that we are in you. And Father, may your kingdom come more fully. May the community outside know this justification by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you uh, came in tonight, you would have received one of these, uh, a response card. So I want to give us a few moments to fill that out now, especially if you're here for the first time or you've just been coming, um, it'd be great just to, for you to fill that out. Um, you, know, um, you know, it's just good to be able to know you're here so we can catch up with you especially. Um, and also there are things on the back, you know, you can be responding today as well. Tonight it might be that you want some prayer requests and there's a place on the reverse side that you can ask uh, a prayer team to be praying for you. Um, you know, you might have, you know, there's a whole lot of different ways you can respond there. So I'll give you a few moments to do that. That would be good. And if you, yeah, might just keep processing that, what Jesus is confronting you with tonight. Uh, you can continue to fill it out, but as we, uh, this is our time of our service when we take up our offering. Um, this is for those of us, again, who call um, Wodonga Baps home. Um, the, what we just long to do is to use everything that, that comes into the offerings to really build the kingdom, that people would come to salvation through Jesus Christ. So as we come to give and, and give generously, um, let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, we just want to say, um, we just ask... Lord, that uh, tonight um, our giving would please you, Lord, that we come generously, Lord, trusting in your, the goodness that you've given to us, all these great uh, financial gifts you've blessed us with. And we pray that you'd help us to be generous, Father, and that, that uh, tonight this offering would really be pleasing to you, Father, that it would be a, uh, a component of our worship and praise to you. And Father, we ask that, um, you know, that your kingdom would be built, that people would be equipped in the church to really, to really uh, live for your glory here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Very good. Well, our offering will now be collected. And um, if you can pop the blue response cards in the offering buckets as it comes around, that would be, be fantastic.